Yeah. Uh oh. <laughs> when you hope it's not allegorical. Okay, what was your dream? Well, essentially it was just that I, for some reason, was eating a watermelon, like at Brandeis, just like a whole watermelon. And by the time I reached this class, I had like a slab of the watermelon on which I proceeded to inscribe my quiz answers. <laughs> so I was going to hand that to you. And I, and I think it broke, and I, it, it became sort of awkward. Um, and, I, and, like, rather than being this sort of surreal thing where I just thought it was normal, I actually thought, even in the dream, like, I probably should have just done my quiz on this paper. So, so anyway, um, I thought maybe it was, like, an allegory for the state of my thesis, which obviously is not for this class, but you know, somehow projecting. This is your creative writing thesis? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm joking. But, oh. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I mean, that is totally awesome. My answers have been pulped. <laughs> well, it must have something to do with the size of the Fairy Queen and then the, um, the demand to turn that into quiz answers, um, which is why it breaks into. White, white collapses. Finish it. Why so much cheese comes out. <laughs> yeah, and, and leaks all over the table. <laughs> <laughs> Poured out in looseness on the grassy ground. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah, no, that's good. Are other people dreaming of the Fairy Queen? I have consistent nightmares every night. <laughs> about the fairy queen? <laughs> no, no, not about the fairy queen, but things in general. <laughs> we all do that. <laughs> They say 70% of dreams or so are unpleasant. Um, it's one reason we forget them. But not many people wake up in a cold sweat having dreamt of Henry the Sixth, Part 1, Part 2, Part <laughs> Yes, I think that's safe to say. We um, forget. Yeah, no, no. It's, yeah, it's, you would have a lot more trouble going to sleep if you remembered how bad most of your dreams were. Um, people would fear sleep more than, they, more than they do. People tend not to fear sleep. Um, although that's a, fearing sleep is a typical um, literary device for, for pangs of conscience. Macbeth has murdered sleep. Yeah, well, but he doesn't get to sleep. Yeah. He would like to sleep. I don't know if it's fear is so much as dread, if I could make that yeah. distinction. Make that distinction. Yeah, it's not like afraid of being sleep, going to sleep. I think a lot of people dread going to sleep because of dreams or other ways. Yeah. Yeah, what dreams may come. Be restful, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <sighs> yes, indeed. Okay, how's how is our reading of um, book six going? Um, yesterday, it turned out that that for those of you who weren't here, and for those of you who was, <laughs> that one of you who was, um, a lot of people didn't come yesterday. It was a rainy day. It was book six. I know. Um, uh, that people hadn't gotten very far into it. There is a quiz on Monday. Um, I'll just say something about pa about the papers now. Should I say it yet? Or should I say it when you're done with book six? Um, you should also, by the way, I will say this, you should also be reading the mutability cantos uh, if you haven't read them yet. We looked at the very end of them, um, but we didn't look. There are two cantos plus the last two stanzas of the third mutability canto. So um, they're great, and they're... Um, as I mentioned before, extremely important to Shakespeare. Um, and there, for whatever reason, that seems to be the part of the Fairy Queen that Spencer wrote in the last three years of his life. Um, so after writing um, an enormous amount in the previous six years, that is books three through six, um, that's a lot of writing. 
Um, you know, that means if we're reading all the Fairy Queen in a little bit more than half a semester, so say a quarter of a year, um, Spencer is writing it at only, I mean, at a speed which is, um, on, which is as much as 124th of the speed that you're reading it. So think about that. Think about what it'd be like to be writing the Fairy Queen at 124th of the speed that you're reading it. You're reading it all the time, um, right? I hope. <laughs> um, and he's writing it at a pace which is um, closer, um, which is twice as fast, more than twice as fast, as a minute hand pursues a second hand. Um, so that you know, that's that's pretty fast um, that he's writing this. But then the last three years of his life, he doesn't write very much of the Fairy Queen, at least not very much um, that survived. Um, and uh, but what he does write is the Cantos on Mutability, which are clearly self-reflective. That is the kinds of issues that we've been talking about throughout um, the issues of. Um, what to do with variety. Um, in a sense, that, in, that is ultimately what you could, you could say that the theme of the Fairy Queen is, is um, how do we think about, how do we cope about the fact of variety? Um, what do I mean by that? I mean that una is truth. And the idea of truth is that it should be a single thing, simple and perfect. Um, the one true church, the one truth. Truth should just be the truth. Um, variety seems to be opposed to the idea of truth. And so from the start, the justification of allegory is it's not true, but it's a pathway towards truth. Um, but allegory gives you variety, and it gives you a pathway towards truth. Mutability, however, is the goddess of variety. She says nothing ever stays the same. Everything always varies. Everything always changes. And so variety is also um, what wicked time produces in the Garden of Adonis. Um, things are always changing, nothing is stable, nothing stays the same. The classical philosophical opposition, which comes from Plato and Aristotle, is the opposition between being and becoming. Um, being and becoming in, um, in ancient and in modern philosophical thought are two of the great, is, or is one of the great polarities, two of the great poles in um, philosophical conflict. For, it seems that for something to be means that it is what it is. Um, however, things are always changing, and things are always becoming other things. And so for Plato, the realm of forms is the realm of being. That's where you get everything timelessly itself. And the world we live in is the world of becoming. And the world of becoming is where everything is always changing into something else. What Plato and Aristotle couldn't, um, and Spencer knows Aristotle much better than he knows Plato. Plato is not well known 
in Spencer's time, although he's starting to become well-known. Um, but what Aristotle and Plato both say is that if you try to understand what being is, it seems clear that something can't begin to be, because then being would be infected by non-being. There would be a boundary region, a transitional region from non-being to being, and that transitional region couldn't be the region of being, but it couldn't be the region of, of not being either. And they can't see how being could ever start. The whole idea of being is that it is, um, not that it is for a little while. If it is for a little while, then it's not actual being. So being versus becoming um, is the opposition that Plato first and then Aristotle following him saw as um, the only way to solve the problem of change, is that there's a realm of being and that there's another realm where everything is changing and, and things are becoming other things. Um, to the extent that they're like the realm of being, um, we can get an intuition or an insight into being, but to the extent that they're always shifting, then we're in our world of mutability and where nothing lasts and where there is no permanent being. Yeah? Does, does the discussion of Aristotle and difference between becoming being, does that have any crossover with the discussion of creation ex nihilo? Yes. Um, that is to say that what um, Christian Aristotelians will say is, no, the thing is God is the source of all being, because the question where does being come from is then, um, that's the question in, in, one, um, in what's called ontology. Ontology is the study of being. Philosophy divides into um, several different major um, groupings. Ontology is the study of being. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. Um, and then there's, there's deontology, which is the study of moral uh, morals. Um, and logic, of course, which is the ology or the logi of all the other um, parts of philosophy. Ontology is the logic of being, discourse of being, or logic of being. Epistemology is logic of knowledge. Deontology is logic of obligation, and so on. But ontology is the study of being. And um, what the Christian Aristotelians said was, um, partly coming out of Neoplatonism, um, is that being, um, that, that being is itself God. Um, and that all other created things God creates um, because he is the source of being, and he can cause being to come into existence out of nothing, simply by speech. But the point is that it's, there's no becoming in God's creation. It's he creates, he causes being by fiat. He says, let there be light, and there was light. Um, and it's the moment that he says it that it comes into being. Um, but it doesn't become out of something else. So creation ex nihilo is um, essentially the, um, the um, existence, um, the sudden and absolutely um, immediate um, existence of a new being, namely the being of light and then of all the other things that God creates. Um, those who think that you can't have, be that being is eternal, which is what Plato said, um, that it that if that it's not being if it isn't eternal, which is an argument that Plato makes very strongly over and over again in his dialogues. Don't think that God creates um, ex nihilo. What they think that God does is he takes what already exists 
um, which could be chaos, um, and he gives it form, but it's not, it's, it's not a source of becoming. But the, but the argument between being and coming, the attempt to reconcile them, the attempt not to reconcile them, all of that is very, very old in philosophy. Um, it goes to pre-Socratic days, and I want to quote um, something for you from Anaximander, the pre-Socratic philosopher Anaximander in a minute. Um, so the, these are the philosophers before Socrates, um, the most famous and important of whom was Parmenides. Um, essentially the only um, person in Plato's dialogues Parmenides was an old man when Socrates was a very young man and Parmenides completely wipes the floor with Socrates in their dialogue um, Socrates is utterly and completely demolished by Parmenides in their dialogue um, but um, Heidegger asks, says the great question for ontology and for philosophy is the following why is there something rather than nothing? That's the question that philosophy has to answer. Why is there something rather than nothing? And that's why his book is called Being and Time, his first great book. Um, being and Time, it's the being part of that, is that there is something rather than nothing. The time part is a little bit Spencerian, but we have to cope with the fact that one day we'll be nothing that being will survive us, that we are thrown into a world of being and that we'll die. Um, so time is human experience. Um, being is what we experience only through the medium of time. Um, so think of that in, as, as what you get in Spencer as well, that variety always means the passage of time. What Anaximander says, and this is relevant to Book 5 of The Fairy Queen, although I doubt that Spencer knew this, but he would have known um, or cottoned on to similar ideas in Greek philosophy, but this is um, said to be the first recorded sentence of, of Western philosophy, was um, for they... Um, they um, grow and depart and um, and give and take um, unjustly from each other um, according to the dictates of time which produces justice. Now I'm not going to get exactly right, but which produces justice in the long run. Um, so the idea, what Anaximander is basically saying is what the pre-Socratics and what Socrates tried to reconcile was um, the idea of motion and of truth. That is, if there's motion in the world, then it's hard to speak of the truth because the truth would be constantly changing. Truth would only be, um, would be in constant flux. But they had a commitment to the idea of truth with a capital T. And constant flux seemed to go against the very idea of truth. That's another way of seeing a distinction between being and becoming. Um, so what Anaximander is saying is that if you look at the universe, this is something that, that um, some modern physicists also want to say. If you look at the universe from outside of time, then there is no flux. And what happens if you look at the universe from outside of time is that everything in the universe at some point is at a maximum. 
everything in the universe gets its day, and if you look at um, the universe outside of time, you will see that at some place in the universe, everything in the universe has its day. Um, everything in the universe is um, cheats everything else, but also um, gets finds restitution for the way that it's cheated. And so, outside of time, um, everything is treated equally. If you look at a lifespan of any human being, um, every life integrated over the whole of the lifetime will be equal to every other life in terms of um, costs and benefits, pains and pleasures, um, hope and despair, and so on. That's what Anaximander wants to say, that the truth is stable, and it only looks unstable to us because we're caught in time, but time is an illusion. Um, the way Plato will describe it is that time is the moving image of eternity. Eternity doesn't move. From the viewpoint of eternity, um, there is no time. It's only from the viewpoint of this world, which is a world of illusion, that we only look at things one moment after another instead of seeing the whole, which nevertheless exists. It's like we're only in the current frame of the movie, but the, tr but the truth is the whole movie, and the whole movie contains every frame simultaneously. And that's the perspective from eternity. So reconciling, attempting to reconcile variety with truth, that's a very old question, but one that comes up strongly within allegory. Um, comes up strongly within um, at the in the um, mutability cantos as the debate between mutability and the other gods. They all stand for truths. Each god is a partial truth, but the synod of the gods together um, would stand for truth itself. Um, Jove as king of the gods would be the um, the the um, summation and condensation and compression of all the. Um, parts of truth that the other gods stand for, but then there's mutability, who says that everything changes. And then nature says, ah, but mutabilities will also um, work her own decay. This is what we talked about. For thou, thy decay thou seeks by thy desire, but time shall, be, shall come when no more change shall be, but all shall steadfast rest upon the pillars of eternity. So what nature says is mutability itself changes everything all the time, a little bit like Anaximander says, until it changes the very fact that it's changing everything over time. And so that with mutability you can see a way that variety finally, the final variation of variety is truth. That if you go through all possible variations, which is what allegory might be said to be doing, what fairyland is about, all these different adventures, um, in a technical sense, random. That is, you guys will use the term random just to mean, well, that was surprising. Um, but if you use random in a more technical sense as something um, uh, that, that occurs without cause, um, that idea of randomness means that one random thing that will happen is that randomness will come to an end. And that's essentially what nature is saying to mutability. Because one, once randomness comes to an end, it really does come to an end. Actually, there's a really cool card trick that I just learned that, 
that's based on this. I'll just tell you how the trick works. Just imagine that I've done it for you and you're in awe, um, which is I have a deck of cards. No one has a deck of cards, right? None of you is... No? You're not poker players? Ah, actually, it's not worth it, but I do have an iPhone app, um, which has... Well, maybe it is worth it. It's so well, it's such a good trick. I think it is illustrative of Spencer. Do you want to see a card trick? Yeah. Um... Did you really? I deck. That's what yeah. it's called. I had one in a really fancy Christmas cracker, which was about this size. Yeah, I had, deck. I kept a mini one in my purse. Okay, so I've just shuffled the deck. There's a shuffle deck. Do you trust me that I shuffled the deck, or are you want yes. me to shuffle it again? It's a shuffle deck key. Um, and are you? Do you guys feel reasonably confident in your ability to do uh, fairly quick arithmetic? No. Oh God. Okay. Well, who do you do, Tony? Reason? Okay, well, here's how this trick is going to work. We're, first, we're going to do it with one person, just with Tony. So, so um, what I want you to do is think of a number without telling me what it is, between 1 and 10. Um, I'm going to slowly show you cards. Can you see from here? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to slowly show you cards. And um, whatever the face value of the card is, you should add to your number. If, however, it's a face card... If it's a jack, add one. This just makes it a lot easier to do. If it's a jack, add one. If it's a queen, add two. If it's a king, add three. And if it's an ace, I guess add one. Treat the ace as a one. Joker? There are no jokers. There are no jokers. Joker. Um, I know nothing about card games. If it's a joker, I win. (laughs) Okay, so basically you're going to be adding, you're going to think of a number between one and ten. Um... You're going to count, so let's say, we'll, we'll do it out loud just to show you the first time. So let's say you thought of three, because that's what everyone thinks of first. <laughs> um, so let's say, and you cleverly wouldn't have said three, but let's say you thought of three. So what I'm going to do is show you cards. So one, but you're going to do this in your head. Two, so what are you going to add with a jack? One. one. Yeah, but you can ignore it now, because the only card that's going to matter is when you get to the card that you... That you so this is three. Now you look at the king, and so you add what? Three. Three. So we're going to go one, two, three. Now, now what are you going to add? Five. So starting with the next card, one, two, three, four, Five. Now you're gonna add ten. One, etc. Okay. So that's how that's how you're gonna do the trick. So each time you land on a card, you're gonna add the number that that card, um, the number on that card. Um, I'm not gonna know your initial number, but I'm gonna tell you what card you're gonna land on after doing this a few times. So let me see. I think I have to turn this off to reshuffle the deck. Um, What's that? I think it's hot chocolate. Um, okay, so you have a number in mind? Yep. Okay, so everyone watching? Okay, so Tony has a number. We don't know what it is. No one else knows what it is, but it's not a three, right? You don't have to tell me. It could be a three. Okay, so you have your number? 
Okay, don't confuse him now. He's got to concentrate. I'm going to do this slowly so that so it's not like you have to force me to pause as you calculate. Okay, ready? I think you landed there. Oh, stop it. Just say yes. Not my number. No, not your number. I think this is where you landed. Right. When you're counting out. Yeah. Right. Yeah, see? You don't think that's cool? Right. I think I missed some of the rules earlier. Yeah, I feel like okay. I don't exactly get how this works. All right, so there were, <laughs> he thought of a number between 1 and 10. He added that number to starting, starting he, he went to the nth number, let's say he thought of four. The fourth card, he then added whatever the number was on the fourth card, which was the, so what, um, and whatever that number was, um, which I couldn't have known it was going to be the fourth card that he was going to land on because he picked a number between one and ten. He added the number that was on the fourth <coughs> card. Um, he then got to whatever the next card was, let's say the fourth card was a six, he then landed on the sixth card after that. Because I didn't know he was going to land on the fourth card, I couldn't have known that he would land on the sixth card after that. Let's say the sixth card after that was a jack. Um, that means he landed on the first card after that. Because I couldn't have known that, I couldn't have known that he landed on the first card after that. Let's say it was another jack. I couldn't know that he would land on the first card after that, etc. And yet... I could tell you the card he landed on after he did this five or six times. Does that make sense? You want to try it again? Somebody else no, want to try it? Just talk about the no, 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 this is so relevant. <coughs> Grad students, they just want to do a text at hand. We'll do it one more time. Um, no, this is, a, this is actually a very deep trick. Someone want to think of a number? Volunteer? Okay, good. 
Um, remember, jack is one, queen is two, king is three, and ace is one. Okay, so you got a number? Yep. You can all do this if you want. Everyone can think of a number separately. Do you have to think of two numbers? No, you think of a number. Okay, so you're going to think of a secret number. Okay. That number is going to take you to a card. Okay? How does it, I mean, you have to if wait you until you of, see that card? If you card? think of five, the next number you're concerned about is the fifth card. That's oh, okay, yeah. okay. So you yeah, think it's arithmetic and, like, waiting yeah. for that sequence. <laughs> right. There's, like, two different, yeah. Right, so you think of a number, that number takes you to a card, that card tells you the new number to add, that new number uh, okay. takes you to a second card, and so on. So we're going through a series of cards which card you get to is obviously determined by the first oh, number you yes. think of. It's like a yeah. mad Fibonacci. Sort of, except a random Fibonacci. Yeah. Okay, so... You are keeping the total, right? No, you're not keeping the total. It's just the... Okay. Yeah, no, no, you can forget your original number. All you have to do is each number track. takes you yeah. to yeah. another card, and that card is the new thing. It's like a new book of the Fairy Queen. It's the new thing in your life with this trick. The okay. two tracks will eventually catch up to each other because you're going to end up landing on that sixth card when it's going to be your... It's supposed to be the sixth card in your sequence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I don't know second. what you're saying. All right, forget it. I, I think I understand. I'm just not going to explain. Okay, do you understand? So no, I'm not going to explain that. All right. All right, so, so if you think of a one, you look at the, whatever the first card is. If it's a three, you look at the third card after that. If it's a three again, you look at the third card after that. You just do that. Yep. Okay? So everyone has it now? And okay. That six, what, what, was, what did it signify? That was, gonna, that was the sixth, sixth card in a sequence. That was the that, one he was set to. That was the one that he landed on after doing this. Right. It's not the 52nd card, is it? No. Okay. No, no, no. So, card. okay, everyone should think of a number. <laughs> Do you all have So uh, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's possible that you're thinking of ten different numbers. Unlikely, but possible. Okay? So, um, everyone has a number? Remember, jack is one, king is two, I mean, queen is two, queen is three. Ah. <laughs> jack is one, queen is two, king is three, ace is one. Okay, ready? Everyone has a number? So, I'm going to do cards when, you, when I've done the number of cards that you're thinking of. Look at that card, and then starting with the next card, count that number out. Okay?
who landed there? Only three of you, really? I landed on the one before three. Huh. Hmm. So that is the 50-second card, right? In this case, it was. Yeah. yeah, in this case, it was. In, the, in Tony's case, it wasn't. Okay, explain it, Julian. Mm, no, I think I got confused. Sorry. No, I think you got it right. Um, when you... Uh, so you have to... You have to count the num count the spots after each card you get. Mm -hmm. So if you get three, you count yourself, and you keep on going until you eventually will sync up and you will land on the last card in this in your set that you have to find. So, you have to so yeah, basically, that's basically the right. more it changes, the more it goes towards a constant. Right. So um, did people understand what Julian just said and what Dino just said? Okay. It's basically what happens is. Um, you know, do you know that if there are 25 people in a room, the odds that two people share a birthday are very strong? Do you, have you ever heard that in probability? Even though there are 365 days a year with 25 people, the odds of a shared birthday is high. With 30 people, um, it's extremely high. And with 50 people, it would be extraordinarily unlikely that you didn't have two shared birthdays. Um, so is this news to anyone? Yes. Yeah, it is news to you. It's a, it's a cool fact. Um, lottery makers use this to, to cheat you. Um, so basically what happens is um, you're thinking of a number at random and I'm thinking of a number at random. And um, if we're thinking of different numbers, which the odds are 9 out of 10 that we are, um, you will land on a card N, you will land on the nth card and I will land on the mth card. Um, and then it may be that your nth card, let's say that, that you land on the four and I land on the six. Um, that, is the, that, that is that you go four cards, um, or you go, you, go and you, you go four cards and you land on a four. And I go six cards and I land on a two. Then you've landed on a four and you go four more and now you land on the eighth card. First you landed on the fourth card, now you land on the eighth. I did six cards and I did two more, and I also landed on the eighth card. After that, we're in sync. And it doesn't matter how we got into sync, after that we are in sync. So I'm giving myself about nine chances by doing this, um, by going through most of the deck. I'm giving myself about nine chances to, to land it. on the same card that you've landed on. Um, and I only have to land on that same card once out of the nine times for us to be in sync from then on. So generally, if you do this trick, um, you should try it on your friends. Generally, if you do this trick, um, you will sync up with the person you're doing it with if you're both calculating correctly um, nine times out of ten um, if you go through a deck. Um, so what happens is sheer randomness has converged into stability. That's exactly what you said, Dino. Um, and so really the fairy queen is, this trick illustrates the hope in the mutability cantos, that, um, that things are always changing, but they will finally change into a pathway where they stop changing. In the same way that we're randomly coming up with different numbers until we come into sync. And once we come into sync, where um, we stay together and there's no more variation like between what they're doing. It's like chemical equilibrium. It's like chemical equilibrium, yeah. 
Um, so it's a trick about synchronization. Um, this is actually one of the a new card trick. This was invented only 25 years ago um, by a probability theorist who, with, an, with enough patter, which I obviously don't have, um, he can do a, a really impressive um, variation of it. Um, but it's a, it's a trick that's only a quarter of a century old. And what's really cool about it, it's not like those, you know, add your birthday, now, now double the number, now subtract your birthday, now have the number. Ah, and it's 43, isn't it? Um, that's just a trick where, where the quantity that you put in, you take out. But this is a trick where it does seem like randomness is defeated. And it's defeated in the same way that Spencer is already thinking about mutability becoming self-defeating in the mutability cantos, randomness is self-defeating in this trick. Um, so I think, you know, it's really important to show this to you because now you can understand the Fairy Queen, right? Grad <laughs> students, yeah. Okay, good. Um, um, everywhere in the Fairy Queen, um, this question of variety versus constancy is at play. The constant pair heard all that he did say in book two. That is, there's the, um, there is the um, singer singing the lovely lay about how time is passing and you should gather the rose whilst yet is time um, because everything is always changing, but Guyon and the Palmer remain constant. The constant pair heard all that he did say. In the Garden of Adonis, um, everything is present in the Garden of Adonis at once. That is to say, the boughs both blossom and fruit do bear continually, continually, both, um, both blooming at one time. Um, so everything is present at once, like um, a time-lapse, a set of time-lapse slides which are, which are um, superimposed on each other. Um, but then time comes with his wicked scythe and messes up that unity of all variety. He desynchronizes everything in the Garden of Adonis. We could be happy if everything stayed in sync. The land of fairy at the beginning of book six, we already looked at this, um, but um, it's worth looking at the word again that Spencer uses in the proem to book six, the ways through which my weary steps I guide in this delightful land of fairy are so exceeding spacious and wide and sprinkled with such sweet variety of all that pleasant is to ear or eye that I nigh ravished with rare thoughts delight my tedious travel do forget thereby and when I begin to feel decay of might, its strength to me supplies and cheers my dulled sprite. Um, so what fairyland is a land of extreme variety, but it's all included, as in the Garden of Adonis, it's all there in fairyland. So what we were looking at yesterday, especially those who um, missed the class yesterday, we were talking about um, the relation of justice to courtesy. But what we were looking at in Book 5, Canto 3, um, excuse me, Book 5, Canto 2, and we should just pursue this, is the, was the giant who was um, attempting to get rid of all variation. And um, 
what the giant wants to do is have the have fire stop encroaching upon air, have water stop encroaching upon earth. Um, do any of you know the Nabokov novel Pale Fire? Have you heard that title? Yes. Uh, I didn't finish reading it. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> that is just really, uh-uh. It's on your exam right now. <laughs> Her exam is April 7th? Mm, yeah. yeah, okay, put Pale Fire on the list. Oh, God, can no, I no, just no. put Lolita on No, this? no, no, Pale Fire is Nabokov's greatest novel, by far. Um, the title comes from Shakespeare, um, from Timon of Athens. Do you know where, Vino? No. The su- the I haven't s- finished uh, going through Timon of Athens properly. I see. <laughs> um, a very, very well put. Remember that formulation. <laughs> I have not yet finished a proper reading. I've left of them, the two gentlemen of, no, the other one, the two noble kinsmen, and I've got one more to look at properly. Properly, yes. Are you studying for generals? Yeah. I'm studying for him. He's <laughs> yes. going to test me on everything. Including Pale Fire. Oh, God. Um, the, so the, so um, Timon, the misanthrope, says that, um, and Shakespeare's thinking, I think, of this passage in The Fairy Queen, says... Um, <laughs> that the sun's an errant thief and steals the vapor from the seas. The sun's a thief and steals the vapor from the seas. The moon's an errant thief and steals her pale fire from the sun. So Timon sees everything in the world, everyone, everything, every being is a thief, always uh, making a living out of um, taking things from other beings. This is his version of um, of trade and capitalism. It, uh, it's it's mutual theory. Juliet's uh, moon thing. She's pale and sick with grief that thou her handmaid art far more, far more fair than she stolen. Yes. Things. Good. Good. Light. You've done that properly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just do pale fire properly. Too. Okay. So what we have here. This is page seven forty four. Um, is um, uh, article replying and says um, that um, God has created everything the way he has. It stands at 36. Such heavenly justice doth among them reign <coughs> that everyone do know their certain bound in which they do these many years remain. And amongst them all, no change hath yet been found. So that's your equilibrium there. Um, things are, there's constant change, but it's constant. And that's how equilibrium works. But if thou now shouldst weigh them new in pound, we are not sure they would so long remain. All change is perilous, and all chance unsound. Therefore, leave off to weigh them all again till we may be assured they shall their course retain. So now what Article is trying to do is give an account of variety which doesn't mean changed, which doesn't mean that everything is always changing into something else. He's trying to give a, what, what will later be called a perspicuous account of difference. That is, that if you look at it from um, the right perspective, from a, from a perspective outside of time, this constant change settles into something constant. The change itself becomes something constant. Um, as Leibniz will say shortly thereafter, you integrate over the change to get something constant. Um, the giant doesn't agree. Thou foolish elf, said then the giant wroth, cease not 
Seest not how badly all things present be at each estate quite out of sober goth? The sea itself dost thou not dost not thou thou dost thou not plainly see encroach upon the land there under thee, and the earth itself how daily it's increased by all the dying to it turned be. So the giant is against death, and he's saying death is unfair. That the earth is stealing matter from human beings and turning us into dust. Were it not good that wrong were then surceased and from the most that some were given to the least. So the great communist view of the giant is once the revolution comes, there'll be no death because human life will be treated equally with earth and earth won't be able to suck us back into it. And he goes on, Therefore I will throw down these mountains high and make them level with the lowly plain. These towering rocks which reach unto the sky I will thrust down into the deepest main, and as they were, them equalize again. So, um, do we know what he is, uh, what biblical text he's referring to? The giant of all people? Does anyone? No, it's, it's when the apocalypse comes, everything will be flattened. Leveled a new heaven and new earth. Right. So it's the giant who is now offering that vision of the flattening of all mountains and the leveling of everything. Um, tyrants that make men subject to their law, I will suppress that they no more may reign. And lording's curb that commons over all and all the wealth of rich men to the poor will draw. So this actually sounds kind of good. Um, it's odd how good that here we have a villain whose villainy consists of being against tyranny. And wanting equilibrium and equity. And wanting equality and equilibrium and equity. Of things unseen, Article answers, how canst thou deem a right? Then answered the righteous Article, sith thou misdeemest so much of things in sight since thou misdeems so much of things in sight. What though the sea with waves continual do eat the earth? It is no more at all, nay is the earth the less, or loseth aught. For whatsoe'er from one place doth fall is with the tide unto an other brought, for there is nothing lost that may be found if sought. So here we have the conservation of matter, essentially. Um, but the question is, how much good does that do you as an individual? The idea that everything that you lose, someone else gains which is essentially what Artigal is saying. See, it's all just. You may lose, someone else gains, it evens out in the end. Likewise, the earth is not augmented more by all the dying into it do fade. So the earth doesn't get any bigger just because you die. For of the earth they formed were of yore, that is, dust to dust. However gay their blossom or their blade do flourish now, they into dust shall fade. What wrong then is it if that when they die, they turn to that whereof they first were made. All in the power of their great maker lie. All creatures must obey the voice of the Most High. And then he says, and this is the counter-argument to what the giant says, they live, they die, like as he doth ordain, nay ever any asketh reason why. Well, that's certainly not true. Um, the hills, but then he says, the hills do not the lowly dales disdain, the dales do not the lofty hills envy. And his point here is that you can't have hills without dales. They're part of the same thing. No hill without a valley. Um, it's like no front without a back. 
um, they are part of the same structure. He maketh kings to sit in sovereignty. He maketh subjects to their power obey. He pulleth down, he setteth up on high. He gives to this, from that he takes away. For all we have is his, what he lists do he may. So the argument that Artigal gives is an argument for variety as um, totalized under unity if you see it all at the same time. Hills and dales are different from each other, and yet they are coordinated with each other. They're part of one larger thing. So the idea of variety um, is an idea which Artigal is very strongly trying to say comports with justice. Courtesy is also going to be attention to variety, to understanding that others may not think as you do, but you have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, what you're going to see for Monday when there is a quiz on book six um, and on the mutability contest, um, what you're going to see for Monday is the dance of the three graces, which is a very old iconographic tradition. Um, and do people know the um, iconography of the three graces? Have you ever seen that image? It's done over and over again. It's basically three women um, who are dancing, and two of them are, and their 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 arms are linked over each other's shoulders. They're naked. They're the three graces. Two of them are facing the viewer, and one of them has her back. The middle one has her back to the viewer. So you see front, back, front, um, facing you, and they're in a dance, and that's the dance of the graces. That that image is going to come up at the crucial point of um, Canto of Book Six of the Fairy Queen. The enemy to all of this is slander. And what you should think about is why is the blatant beast the enemy? I mean, it's obvious why the blatant beast is the enemy to courtesy. Why is the blatant beast, let's say, the evil, unjust version of variety, whereas courtesy is the good and just version of variety? That's what to think about as we finish our reading of The Fairy Queen. Mm -hmm. Can I see the trick again? <laughs> okay. oh, well. Try it on that your roommates. That is a really interesting thing. It proves that, that randomness and 